0: Today, I want to talk about Be The Bridge's training in anti-racism and how they apply this worldview to the doctrine on the image of God to teach their bridge builders to be color brave and reject the traditional teaching on being colorblind. All of this today on Thoroughly Equipped.
1: your book, you point to Harry Blackman, who wrote, I want to, I want to quote this, he wrote in his dissenting opinion, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way. And in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. Is it still an anti-racist idea in 2023?
2: W- without question. I mean, I mean, we, of course, can talk about race and racism, but any social or political problem, there's no way in which we can identify it and solve it by ignoring it. <laughs> by not attacking it and addressing it head on.
3: Ibram Kendi's Anti-Racist Baby, page four. Quote, Open your eyes to all skin colors. Anti-racist baby learns all the colors, not because race is true. If you claim to be colorblind, you deny what's right in front of you, unquote. Kendi is explicitly arguing against the idea of teaching children and adults to be colorblind. Being colorblind means ignoring someone's race and just looking at them as a person. Kendi wants you to train your children to constantly be aware of people's skin tone and race. In How to Be an Anti-Racist, he writes, quote, the common idea of claiming colorblindness is akin to the notion of being not racist. As with a not racist, the colorblind individual, by ostensibly failing to see race, fails to see racism and falls into racist passivity. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism, unquote. For Kendi and others, If you're colorblind, that means you're not noticing racism all the time.
4: Many times when approaching the conversation of racial injustice, I hear people say, I don't see color or I'm colorblind. And although that intention behind the statements like these may seem harmless, they are harmful as they communicate the idea that you don't see me. It's impossible to pursue racial reconciliation and be colorblind at the same time. And in order to
3: be anti-racist, you must be ever vigilant and relentless in finding racism everywhere. That means you cannot teach your children to be colorblind. If you follow Kendi's advice and raise an anti-racist baby, you must raise a baby
1: to be race conscious.
3: Why is this movement now so dangerous as opposed to the movement of the 1960s?
1: What we see now is that, I guess there was a letter that was signed by 100 or 200 Princeton. Uh, faculty and uh, and master's students that called for reorganization of the institution of Princeton around ideas of anti-racism, around ideas that they call equity. And equity is not equality. Equity is equalization.
5: All people are equitably made, equitably made in the image of God.
1: What equity does is that it takes perceived privilege and perceived oppression and it decreases everybody who has this so-called privilege in order to lift up everybody that has this so-called oppression. And what that ends up up becoming is a redistribution of resources, both in the sense of just monetary resources or in positions of authority, but also moral reparations. That's what happens. And that's what happened at the Evergreen State College was that once everybody was no longer colorblind, like, yes, appropriating
2: right.
3: of some s- supposed colorblind ideology, Yeah, uh, you know, it's just so disheartening.
1: Everybody yeah. was focused and obsessed with color, with race, with gender, sexuality, all these different vectors or intersectional markers of, you know, your privilege, oppression matrix. And what you were supposed to do is to apologize. If you're a white man, you were supposed to apologize for your privilege. We
5: allow Satan to mobilize his mission through, our, wit- through the, our distorted witness. And I talk about one of the primary ways that Satan does that is through unbrid- unbridled privilege.
1: And put yourself behind everybody else. And if you were, let's say, a disabled, uh, black, trans individual, you were put in front and you were given the moral authority. What I and found it-
4: helpful is if we start to think of privilege collectively. All right, so what are we doing collectively that that's allows some voices to have more of a role than others? And then, what can we collectively do to change that? What practices are we putting in place to reverse this hierarchy of who, who who is getting more in the group or having more power than others?
1: And it no longer had to do with the soundness of your argument, you know, or the content of your character. It had all about it. It stressed not only your identity but how you could maximize that identity to wrest power and to gain attention.
2: Christianity today. Remember the title of the article? The anti-racist curriculum white Christians need. So the first problem is they're talking about an anti-racist curriculum. Borrowing this word straight out of critical race theory. Secondly, white Christians need. White Christians need this curriculum. Why don't other Christians need this curriculum? Because everybody else is part of the marginalized and they have different ways of knowing. They don't need a curriculum. And there are others not just in Southern Baptist seminaries, but in Presbyterian seminaries and Methodist seminaries and others who are teaching these ideas, who have imbibed these ideas. In our churches, there are people young and old, most of whom don't understand these ideas, but they're using this terminology, talking about Elevating the voices of the marginalized and the discussion on race and structural racism and systemic racism and taking racism out of the individual heart and putting it into systems. Here's the problem with that. Racism is real. And guess what we do when we take racism out of the individual heart where sinful partiality resides and tell people that it's in systems. People who are actually racist now believe that it's out there and not in here. It's somebody else's fault. But there's another issue. And that issue is that this is dividing the body. And it's dividing the body in a number of ways. Some, so, sometimes it's, it's dividing the body because we, we, we don't understand these things. Sometimes it divides the body because people who, who, who very sincerely believe one side or the other condemn their brothers and sisters for not agreeing. What do you do when somebody sees an incident and they say, there it is there is structural racism, there is systemic racism. And you're saying, wait a minute, when I look at this case, I see a guy who made a bad decision and a bad decision and a series of bad decisions. I see a guy who instigated an incident and, and that thing went terribly wrong. I see a tragedy for sure. But how can we know if that was racism? And then you're written off. And you're condemned, because how can you how can you not know how can you not know that that was racism?
0: Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped a podcast for women, where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc., to Scripture. Our focus is Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen that all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm your host, Malbatos. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hey guys, welcome again to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So glad that you could join me today. I am just going to... Dive head in on this one um, because we got a lot to cover. So in the last episode, we kind of tackled how "Be the Bridge" trained people to go woke by raising up the voices of people of color and the minority, um, pushing a marginalized or pushing these marginalized historical narratives and standpoints as a way to gain true knowledge regarding racism and oppression. Now, this is adopting intersectionality and pushing forth what Waddy called this eth- ethnic Gnosticism. Um, adopting these narratives or taking on these narratives to train white people on power, white supremacy, microaggressions, racial trauma, etc. Be the Bridge uses all of this to bring people into lament, especially to bring white people into uh, lament and repentance of white privilege and basically whiteness. Today I want to talk about anti-racism and Be the Bridge training. So Be the Bridge is very clear from the very beginning. It's not hard to listen to the podcast, go to the website, read the book. They're very clear that they have an anti-racist uh, perspective on the world, On that it's their goal and purpose. Uh, on the book there's um a review by Pastor Daryl Ford from Icon Community Church who says this quote This is a must read primer for anyone seeking to be a peacemaker rather than just a peacekeeper. Latasha Morrison equips and encourages us to do the difficult but necessary work of dismantling the walls of systemic racism, confronting implicit race, racial bias while establishing an anti-racist purpose. For those wanting to understand and embody the deeply woven fabric of racial reconciliation and anti-racism work, this book will expose, educate, elucidate, and ultimately make you an intentionally conscientious neighbor, end quote. Now, the ministry itself calls its work, especially its work around the youth um, work, is they identify it as, quote, training the now generation of anti racist bridge builders, end quote. That's directly on the website. So now, while most of us grew up understanding racism to be a form of hatred towards a group of people because of the color of their skin, and in that hatred show partiality against those of a different color, or show favoritism towards those of the same color, or even show favoritism towards somebody of a different color. That's still racism. The very term racism today has been manipulated and changed. And be the bridge takes on this new definition of racism. It adopts critical race theory's definition of it, one supported and promoted by Ibram X. Kendi in his very popular book, how to be an anti-racist. So, what is the current definition of racism, and what makes somebody then a racist? According to Kendi, racism are these policies, rules, regulations, ideas, etc. Really, quote, any measure that produces or sustains racial inequality, end quote. That's Kendi's how to be an anti-racist, page 18. Therefore, a racist not only is one who is partial to a certain race, but is a person, quote, who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea, end quote. Kendi, how to be an anti-racist, page 13. A racist idea is, quote, any idea that suggests one racial group is inferior or superior to another racial group in any way. End quote. Page 20. And Kendi goes on to broaden racism to go past race and encroach on culture, claiming that one can be a cultural racist who, quote, creates a cultural standard and imposes a cultural hierarchy among racial groups. End quote. Page 81. Now, just a side note here, I just want to point something out in regards, well, I want to point two things out in regards to these definitions. One, um, you don't define a word using the word in the definition. How do
2: you define racism? Sure, so racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. (laughs) Sure, a a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. And anti-racism is pretty simple using the same terms. Anti-racism is a collection of anti-racist policies leading to racial, anybody want to take a guess? Equity that are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Thank you for this, this is the best, that was the most insightful thing I've ever heard. Racism is when you're racist. Well, you know, racism is when racist things happen. Okay, thanks Henry. Was very illuminating
0: so later on as you read the book he gets a little more clear into what racist means and stuff like that but as you can see from what i quoted in defining racism he uses the word racism or racist so that's one issue there but the other issue i want to point out is um, this idea of cultural racist being a cultural racist or imposing cultural standards as um, somewhat as having these standards that are better than other uh, cultures. Uh, Christianity itself has a certain set of beliefs that create a certain type of culture. In fact, all religions impose upon people of different races, regardless of their race, their own religious culture. Accepting this as an act of racist behavior logically takes you to the conclusion that proselytizing becomes a racist act. Oh, and to integrate from one culture to another would be partaking or allowing that dominant culture to perpetuate what he defines as cultural racism. Okay, so back to racism. Well, I've kind of laid out very quickly for you the new definitions of racism, what it means according to Ibram X. Kendi and Critical Race Theory. Um, what it means in the woke culture today to be a racist. So I want to briefly give you the bird's eye view of what it means to be anti-racist then. To be anti-racist is to look at all ethnicities as being equal. And this sounds great. Quote, to be anti-racist is to view national and transnational ethnic groups as equal in all their differences. End quote, page 64 of how to be an anti-racist. The problem is how Kendi and other anti racists support the claim that all ethnic groups are equal. First, they presume that ethnic equality would result in equal outcomes, rejecting that ethnicity is not the only thing that might affect an outcome upbringing, religious belief, moral standards, worth, uh, work ethic, and culture also have an effect within the ethnic heritage that could lead to certain outcomes and lifestyles. And because anti-racism is all about equality of races, not equality of the worth of a human being, but equality in what are outside appearances that should result, by their ideas, should result in equality of outcomes, i.e. equity. It is to take on cultural relativity. Quote, cultural relativity is the essence of cultural anti-racism. To be anti-racist is to see all cultures and all their differences as on the same level, as equals. End quote. Kennedy's How to Be an Anti-Racist, page 91. Kenny gives an example in his book on pages 101 to 102, where he talks about the racist idea of black intellectual inferiority, stating that the achievement gap is the racist standard used to measure this. Instead of working with the black community to meet the standard, he suggests we do away with the standard and use another form of measurement because it, quote, creates a racial hierarchy, end quote, and to Quote, Believe in a racial hierarchy is to believe in a racist idea, the idea of an achievement gap between the races, with whites and Asians at the top and blacks and Latinx at the bottom this creates ra- racial hierarchy, with its implication that the racial gap in test scores means something is wrong with the black and Latinx te- test takers and not the tests. From the beginning, The tests, not the people, have always been the racial problem. End quote, page 101 to 102. So, what was his solution? Quote, what if different environments lead to different kinds of achievement rather than different levels of achievement? What if the intellect of a low-testing black child in a poor black school is different from and not inferior to the intellect of a high-testing white child in a rich white school? End quote. Page 103. So Kendi is arguing that the intellect of the black student is a different intellect, but equal intellect. The problem is not rooted in the person, but the test that rates children's intellect a certain way. Like what I quoted earlier, to see the children's intellect as the same, but the test rates one student's, the white or Asian student, outcome as more important or of higher value than the intellect of the black students. The standards are the problem. now. I understand where people might be coming from here as a homeschooler. We challenge education and the ideas of standards and tests and um, have to actually think about these things as we want to train up our kids to be uh, well-rounded in their education. There may be certain people who look at higher intellect of individuals and claim that their worth surpasses others. But a good reading of scripture and understanding that God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength corrects the prideful sin of basing someone's worth on external things. God in His grace gives wisdom to those who the world would call foolish. God shows no partiality in the gifts and talents He gives. The differences in gifts are an absolutely wonderful thing. But just because one ethnic group excels in intellect while another ethnic group may excel in art doesn't mean that they will produce the same outcomes in life. They both have their worth in culture and society, but they will produce different outcomes because what they ethnically bring to the table is not the only factor in the disparities between them. Ultimately, and what is most important to understand as a Christian is that the full wisdom of God is given impartially to us in Christ. If God gives as he pleases and sets no standard to receiving this wisdom in the gospel, then why would anyone think someone's worth was directly related to anything worldly like ethnicity or intellect? All are sinners. All are in need of Christ, making all of us Wretched, naked, and blind beggars spiritually. Hell is the equitable outcome of our nature. To focus on inequities is to live in the flesh and not in the spirit as God calls us to. But of course, teachers such as Ibram X. Kendi and those within the Be the Bridge ministry don't go to scripture to fight partiality because partiality is not the sin, but hierarchies and ethnic inequities are this type of thinking causes all sorts of problems. Just think how this might apply to the standards of morality and how we determine if something is good or evil. It eliminates scripture as a standard and the way to test the righteousness of an individual, because this would be a whole other episode. I think I need to move on from this. But Because anti-racism is to reject policies, laws, systems, and standards that institute hierarchy and supposed oppression, one can't just not be a racist. If you are benefiting from the privileges that are granted by these systems, then you are participating in racism. Quote, there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, it is anti racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti racist one either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequalities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. End quote. Kennedy, How to Be an Anti-Racist, page 9. The work of anti-racism is the fight against a system to bring liberation to the marginalized, you cannot liberate people who do not see how they are oppressed. So, one must always be on the lookout for inequalities and privileges. Like you heard in the opening clip with Latasha Morrison asking Andrea Smith on what works to bring solidarity among people of color, that collectively addressing these is how it's done. To collectively take on this critical race theory worldview of racism, oppression, hierarchies, and authority. Now, I want to show you that the so-called master teachers that Be the Bridge insists that its bridge builders learn from are people that take on the critical race theory worldview. The worldview that this world is made up of power structures that are put in place to oppress certain types of people. And because these teachers take on this worldview that trains them to see race everywhere and inequities and disparities everywhere, they bring this worldview to the text of scripture. And Honestly, I don't find this shocking. If you are taught to look for race and racism everywhere as an anti-racist, of course you would look at scripture with the same lens. Anti-racism teaches one that it is harmful to not prioritize ethnicity and make equity parts of righteousness and ethnic collective sanctification. Today I want to look at how Be the Bridges teachers twist doctrines of the image of God, sanctification, righteousness, and salvation to make Anti-racist. I showed you in the last episode how Be the Bridge incorporated standpoint epistemology through intersectionality to help bring us into a knowledge of racism and oppression. We talked about how critical race theory universalizes standpoint epistemology, granting special knowledge only to certain ethnicities. Be the Bridge not only connects certain knowledge to certain types of ethnicities, what Vaudibachem coined ethnic Gnosticism, but Be the Bridge goes so far as to say that each ethnicity reflects a certain attribute of God. Instead of the image of God being rooted in the humanity of an individual, given to one male and one female and passed on to all descendants and reflected in each individual, to be the bridge, the image of God is only fully reflected in humanity as a whole. And to express the image of God, Christians must become color-brave, not color-blind the truth is that each ethnicity reflects a unique aspect of God's image. No one tribe or group of people can adequately display the fullness of God. The truth is that it takes every tribe, tongue, and nation to reflect the image of God in his fullness. End quote. That's Morrison's Be the Bridge, page 22. This is a collectivist view of the image of God. In fact, Listen to this clip from the Be the Bridge podcast with Morrison interviewing Andreas Smith from Insight. I believe that this slight twisting about the image of God being uniquely reflected in individual ethnicities comes from a more pantheistic view of God than the traditional transcendent view of God. And this clip, I believe, reveals where this type of belief ends up. You end up with a collectivist and humanistic view on regeneration and sanctification, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in these and placing the work on the collective.
4: In, in terms of kind of addressing relationships between people of color, we need different structures that make us become different people, right? We need structures that that, that kind of require us to think about others, to, to think collectively, not to not just think about our own individual interests. And we can't just think both these things through in our head. And I think that's what we see in Christianity, right? Jesus had the call to be born again because Jesus is telling us under 500 years of white supremacy shenanigans, you are so messed up. Like if we were to end white supremacy right now, we wouldn't recognize ourselves because we are so shaped by these forces of oppression. So we're going to be born again into a new world. We can't even imagine right now into new people. We can't imagine, but how do we do that? Well, we learn in the early church. You don't just think you're way there. You need a practice that helps you get right. there. Right. And so when we create these different kinds of collective practices, we start to become different people in the process. Wow.
0: First off, there are no ethnicities when God made man and woman who were made in His image. From the male and female came all men made in that same image. Are there reflections of different aspects of that image in different ethnicities? No. All are made in God's image, regardless of culture or color of skin. The image of God transcends culture, ethnicity, and color of skin. God is not like us. He is spirit who has no body or ethnicity. So what is given, this image, is not what we see, but are attributes that separate us from all other creation, such things as morality, authority, creativity, logic, and reason, and our purpose is to be fruitful in multiplying these things because we all reflect them in some capacity. These are spiritual in nature. How we reflect them may look different from one culture or ethnicity to the next, but we all have this image individually. Now, if we believe that there are unique aspects of God's image found within ethnicities, it makes sense then, to display the image of God rightly, one must take on ethnic collective structures to allow all ethnicities to display this image. This is why Andrea says what she says. If being born again allows one to rightly display God's image, and you take on a collective ethnic view on this, you will have to conclude that one, we work first off to be born again, and two, that work can only be fully realized through collectively working with other ethnic structures so that each race may adequately display these different aspects of God's image within them. This then begs the question of how is this done? How do we give each ethnicity the ability to display them? In the intro, I played a clip of an interview with Dominic Gilliard stating that people are equitably made in the image of God.
5: All people are equitably made. Equitably made in the image of God.
0: Equity is the issue. We must understand that this. Is at the very core of critical race theory. It's at the core of social justice. It is the expressed goal of an anti racist. It's not about equal opportunity, but about equitable outcomes. Think of equity as just plain fairness. Everybody has the same outcome. They all exercise the same power and authority, and they all have the same privileges. They all own the same, etc. To get everyone to the same outcome, really, All must, in essence, believe the same. Now, I believe that what Mr. Gileard is saying is that God created all people to have the same outcome. Now, I cannot confirm that this is what he means when he says this, as I have not read his newest book. If you have, or if you've heard this claim of being equitably made in God's image and what they mean by stating it that way, please inform me I want to read Gileard's new book, which is about... Levering, uh, leveraging privilege as a Christian, um, I, I'm trying to figure out what he means by stating the doctrine of the image of God this way. But at this point, I'm making an, basically an educated guess by what I've learned about the liberal church, social justice, and the social gospel. Um, its focus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. According to the social gospel, God's kingdom is an equitable kingdom. All will have the same authority and power, which will be no power or authority at all. And all will leverage privilege, which means no one will have any. And all will share, which means no one will own anything. Sound familiar? That's egalitarianism at its finest. This is what God intended until men fell and the sin of power and privilege brought oppression and inequalities. A part of bringing the kingdom is to fix racial inequities. Those racial groups who have more power and privilege must leverage these and center or raise power and privilege to the marginalized. Equitable outcome. This is part of being anti-racist. We'll see this played out as I go over Be The Bridges Whiteness 101 training. In the broader sphere, anti-racism is accomplished through laws and political means. In the more localized sphere, church, religious groups, and educational systems, it's through raising and empowering people who identify as part of the minority. Again, intersectionality at play here. It's done by placing as priority the reading of theological and hermeneutical viewpoints of people of color. This is how you honor each ethnicity and allow them to display their aspect of God's image. This is racial justice. Being anti-racist is the sanctification process by which one achieves racial righteousness. If you thought this was a slippery slope as people talk about racial righteousness, you'd be right to say that that something just doesn't sit right. Because when we start talking about righteousness, we are diving into God's standard here and what pleases Him. And like all forms of works righteousness, Apart from God's law, we end up falling into legalism. Listen to this clip from the Be the Bridge podcast interview with Dominic Gilliard, who, by the way, denies the penal substitutionary atonement of the cross in his book, how he connects reparations to salvation.
5: Zakia said, I realized that I have to not only pay back what I stole, but four times as much because I realized that my sin had a multiplicable impact on communities and it harmed people and impacted people that I never directly encountered. And we have to have that kind of maturity within our faith to be able to soberly assess sin and the impact of our sins. And then we can really start to meet and discern with God and community about what does it look like to make reconciliation a, a material reality. And for Zacchaeus, somebody who got filthy rich off of sin and stealing, it meant reparations. And I know that's a scary word for a lot of folk, but it's 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 right there in the biblical text. And it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't say salvation has come into this house until he actually has articulated this understanding that his reconciliation entailed uh, reparations.
0: Notice that Gilead went so far as to say that Jesus doesn't mention salvation in regards to Zacchaeus until Zacchaeus not only repents, but bears the fruit of that repentance by reparations. There is a glaring, glaring implication he's making here, hoping to draw our attention to imply that Jesus mentioned salvation to Zacchaeus because he showed that he really repented through reparations. And it's not reparations that we might understand from Scripture. The reparations that Scripture shows us from Zacchaeus are ones that are paid directly to those he stole from. Gilear twists it to make it look as if Zacchaeus was paying four times more to make up for societal effects of his sin.
5: Zacchaeus said, I realized that I have to not only pay back what I stole, but four times as much because I realized that my sin had a multiplicable impact on communities. And it harmed people and impacted people that I never directly encountered.
0: This is to read this worldview into the text, not draw out of it. And then Gileard implies that that type of repentance was acceptable enough by Christ to declare that salvation was granted to Zacchaeus. Hugely, hugely problematic. I bring this up because I want you to recognize the complete change of the gospel and Christian life here. The gospel has changed from a salvation that reconciles individuals to God and sets us free from our own sin by God's grace and sanctification through His word to a social, materialistic salvation, one through reparations, with the goal to reconcile man to man through sanctification by collective structures that are supposed to bring equity. Now, think about this. How does Morrison's claim in her book, Smith's view on the collective structures, and Gileard's reference to salvation affect our idea of Christ, who bore the fullness of deity in one ethnicity? Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. And what effect might it have on biblical distinctions? The distinction that racial reconciliationists and anti-racists completely ignore is the Jew and Gentile distinction. The distinction made not by the color of our skin, but whether one is in Christ or out of Christ. The fullness of deity dwelt in him. He bore the image of God undefiled by sin, and in his humanity, which included his ethnicity, fulfilled all the law that was given to it. The law was given to those of ethnic Jewish descent. And it was the adherence to the law that separated one or united one to God, an adherence that no Jew or Gentile could fulfill until Christ who was the promise given to all the nations, the sacrifice of God that would dissolve the separation between Jew and Gentile and unite us into one man in him. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, As Christians, our identity is no longer rooted in ethnicity. It's part of it, but it's not rooted in it. It's rooted in Christ. In whatever ethnicity we are, we are united in the new identity. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit to want to be like Christ and love God and neighbor as he instructs us to in his word. But Morrison Smith, Gilead, and other Be the Bridge builders who take on these collective beliefs take in these intersectional standpoints as truth and actually teach that by them we become born again as we heard, bringing in the kingdom of God and are sanctified as the collective leverages the privileges of white people to people of color. Be the bridge trains people to become anti-racist, to identify racism in the system and challenge and take on practices, or as Andrea Smith called them, collective structures that go against whiteness and white supremacy within it. This is where it will lead for Christians who join the ministry and participate in these communities. Humanity's worth, the image of God, is not reflected in groups. For Marston's claim to be true, no man or woman alone reflects the image of God as fully intended. And that teaching causes problems, huge, huge problems. One of the problems, as we will see, will come from her next statement describing what we need to do to fully reflect the image of God. And that is to encourage people to be color brave and not color blind.
4: Many times when approaching the conversation of racial injustice, I hear people say, I don't see color or I'm color blind. And although that intention behind the statements like these may seem harmless, they are harmful as they communicate the idea that you don't see me. It's impossible to pursue racial reconciliation and be colorblind at the same time.
0: Quote, in the love of the family of God, we must become color brave, color caring, color honoring, and not colorblind. Morrison's Be the Bridge, page 23. Let's dive into this a little more because this phraseology has been passed around a lot. The
1: difference between being colorblind and color brave. Color courageous discipleship.
3: We uh, gotta be color brave. I like that. I wanna be that.
0: Sounds very good, but what do people mean by color brave? And why are we to reject being colorblind? Typically, when we talk about being colorblind, we mean that we desire to get to know a person's character, beliefs, morality, etc., regardless of their skin color. We do our best not to judge one based on the color of their skin and to actually get to know the person, what we may call the spirit of the person. This is how we kill real racism, by understanding that each individual is created in the image of God and worth getting to know, worth being treated as I want to be treated because they too are an image bearer. This does not mean outright ignoring the ethnicities that God created. Vadi Bachum expresses this in the same presentation that I used in the intro clip of the last episode. Um, in his presentation titled "Ethnic Gnosticism," explaining where color blindness might go too far by rejecting ethnicity altogether when God has set our world up to display the beauty of humanity and diversity of skin, culture, traditions, etc. He emphasizes that the church should especially give glory to God in his providence in these things, and how within them, he unites us through the gospel. I grasp what he's saying, but I'm not sure on there entirely. First, I think it's a bit of a straw man presented by anti-racists that when people say they don't see color, they actually mean it. I mean, we all see color unless you're colorblind or or blind but we all see the ethnicity so we all see color we mean by saying uh that we are colorblind that we don't judge them based on the skin color but we make judgments based on people's beliefs their their morality and their character etc but i agree with body bakum i look at ethnicities color of skin the different cultures all of this is God's artwork with hu- within humanity. Art pieces in the past were to produce a sort of display of truth or an idea. Art throughout the centuries have always made a statement. That's their purpose. Even modern art and postmodern art make a statement about the times and the culture. The question is, what is it conveying? In the same way, each person, by the color of their skin, with the ethnic and cultural backgrounds, display the beauty and artistic talent of God. But what is the beliefs and statement that each person portrays? To me, how much of Christ is presented in the individual? This is a unifier among Christians. Any Christian will tell you they want to be like Christ. So I guess what I'm saying is that I believe color blindness is like looking at a piece of art to assess the meaning. We take in the colors, the shape and the form, but the meaning of the piece is the end result we want to capture and hold on to. But maybe you have a different idea of what color blindness means. Let me know in the comments cuz I'd like to think about it some more. But colorblindness has been twisted and now is taught among critical race theorists to be a form of racism. Quote, the claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism. End quote. Kendi's how to be an anti-racist, page 9 to 10. It is this new epithet of white supremacy as racism no longer is about individual hatred of a particular race, but is a byproduct of structures and systems set up to advantage the white majority. And this is because the teaching revolving around color blindness is one started and promoted in Western thought. According to Eduardo Bonella Silva, professor of sociology at Duke University, who wrote, Racism Without Racists, Colorblind Racism, and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. Bonella Silva coins the term new racism, forming the idea that racism is perpetuated by taking on certain beliefs, these beliefs that America has been built on. Nia Silva argues
6: that one, racism did not end with the Civil Rights Act, but rather became more covert um, and that the avoidance of racial terminology and a growing uh, claim by whites that they experience reverse racism Um, he argued that there was an elaboration of a racial agenda over political matters without explicit reference to race so basically racialization increases but no one's actually kind of saying race outright Um, an invisibility of most mechanisms that uh, produce and reproduce racial inequality And that some of the racial practices used today are actually similar to those used in the Jim Crow era. And so um, what Eduardo Bonilla-Silva gave that last point a name, colorblind racism. And colorblind racism can be defined as the denial, minimizing, or rationalizing of racism through the claim of colorblindness. By claiming that they are colorblind, uh, Bonilla-Silva found that white um, participants in, um, in his study could explain away the existence of racism. And so furthermore, Bonilla Silva called claiming claiming colorblindness itself a racist act. Claiming not to see color or rationalizing racism not only dismisses the experiences of people of color, but also helps to maintain a racialized social system. So in other words, it sustains a system of structural oppression. in his interviews with them, Bonilla Silva was interested in how white participants understood the persistence of racism in the post-civil rights era. And what he found was that even though white participants did not subscribe to the same overt and openly racist um, ideologies of racial difference, they utilized similar frames through a colorblind ideology. In other words, white participants largely believed that racism was no longer an issue, claimed not to see color, while simultaneously utilizing historically racist explanations to explain why racism wasn't an issue. In his analysis of these interviews, Bonilla Silva identified four central frames of colorblindness. So the first frame that Bonilla-Silva identified was abstract liberalism, and for a quick review, liberalism emphasizes individual rights, equal opportunity, and that force should not be used to achieve social policy. And we discussed the idea that even though rights are important, liberalism frames rights in a very individualistic way, and that high individualism is what comes into play with the abstract liberal frame of colorblindness. Participants who used this frame explained away the persistence of racism through the use of liberal ideologies. So Bonilla Silva identified three major forms abstract liberalism took. The first way was rationalizing inequality as equal opportunity. So participants who utilized this frame opposed policies like affirmative action, um, which is providing special consideration of race and college admissions, for example, or job opportunities. Um, They also opposed reparations, uh, which is reimbursing African-Americans for the economic impacts of slavery and Jim Crow segregation. And instead, white participants who utilized this frame argued that everyone should have the same opportunities as everyone else any policy or program that would ameliorate the generational impacts of racism was viewed as a handout. And the second form abstract liberalism took was meritocracy. The idea that people get ahead through talent and hard work. And the final form is this idea of being against the use of force. So white participants who use this argument essentially said that any social policy meant to force foster racial equality was a use of force against them. In other words, their individual rights, uh, in particular their individual right to choose, was being violated.
0: Notice... What are the beliefs of those who claim to be colorblind? Liberalism, individual rights, equal opportunity, meritocracy, being against the use of force, and having the right to choose. In reality, it is these and other beliefs that Western civilization has been built upon that critical theory is after. It wants to undermine and call these oppressive. Now really really think about this. What is the source of these types of beliefs? Christianity, ladies. But I digress. Dig deep enough and the teaching on color blindness within woke ideology is that it is founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs. To be anti-racist is the goal, and part of anti-racist is to embrace color bravery. Now, color bravery is to reject colorblindness, take on a form of racial essentialism. I find this very very ironic as I've studied this. First, what is racial essentialism? Well, essentialism is the belief that objects have a set of attributes that are necessary to their identity. Racial essentialism, therefore, is believing that race is a fixed biological property or essence which determines a person's characteristics or abilities. So now can you see the connection between racial essentialism and the idea that Be the Bridge uh, espouses that God's image, there are certain aspects to God's image displayed in ethnicities. There's a connection. So, we we see racial essentialism clearly in certain political groups who may tout that a certain race of people need extra support because they are incompetent. Whoa, 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 hang on, guys. The incompetence is believed to be tied to the race. In critical race theory, race is the essence that determines a person's characteristics or abilities. Critical race theorists, people pushing the woke ideology, racial reconciliationalists, and anti-racists consistently say that race is a social construct set up by white supremacists, yet want to root their identity or their essence in race, and they root any hardships in oppression to race. And being color brave is just that. It's the anti-racist action of rooting one's essence in their race and teaching others to continually see race, to continually embrace race by bringing equity into all spheres of life. How does one go about bravely embracing race and work to bring equity in all spheres of life, especially the church? Well, that's what we're going to look at the next episode as I continue to critique Be the Bridge. And the first step in becoming anti-racist is to train people to divest of whiteness. So my conclusion for today's episode. What are the problems with becoming anti-racist? Do a cursory glance over Be The Bridges' website and listen to a couple of their episodes on their podcast, and you'll hear the term anti-racist quite a bit. They do not shy away from it. They take on and imbibe anti-racist teaching as given by Ibram X. Kendi. And do just a small amount of research on what Kendi teaches, and you'll find that it boils down to a worldview, one that is not neutral and requires action. Quote, Kendi is not merely offering us a practical guide to fight racism, but an entirely new way to see the world, in which privilege is the original sin, systems of power are the enemy, activism is atonement, and equity is the new heavens and the new earth, end quote. That's from Shenvi's article, The Gospel of Anti-Racism, a short review of Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. Link to that article I highly suggest you read is in the description. And Be the Bridge's goal is to bring people to see the world Candy's way, not God's way. It brings one to believe that by challenging the oppressor, oppressed dynamics within society or social justice, is helping to usher in God's kingdom. We supposedly do this by allowing the image of God to be displayed through racial differences and setting up collective structures to work together and sanctification through racial reconciliation, reparations, suppressing whites through speech equity, and through centering people of color in the collective, etc, etc. To do this, we take on the belief that we heard in the very beginning of the intro clip that quote, "In order to get beyond racism, we first must take into account race." There's no other way, and in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. End quote. We must not be colorblind. We must see race, and to treat those of other races equally, we must treat them differently. But more importantly, we must show them partiality. Anti-racism demands partiality to produce equity. To equalize the power, authority, and hierarchy among ethnicities requires reparations of many forms, such as taking speech, authoritative positions, power privileges, and policies away that don't produce the equitable outcomes anti-racism deems acceptable. It means ignoring the hard work and talents, character traits, beliefs, principles, standards, etc., well, rejecting these things at an individual base and to actually take in race to make sure all ethnicities are represented. What I believe is happening here is that we have been witnessing for the last 50 or so years a denial of humanity's sinful nature that resides in every person born of Adam. We deny personal responsibility, that scripture calls people to examine their sin, and we see a basic blame shift. For evil in this world, from one's duty to examine their heart and choices, to now it's the duty of a person to look at systems, law, structures, um, such as the church and family, to blame them for not only the evil and oppression in the world, but to blame them for why one may not have what someone else has. Not only does the system sin against people of color and keeping them oppressed, It makes sure they don't get the same property and material items that they want and that their neighbor has. Our world is promoting the sin of coveting and envy under the guise of equity. The true evil is that we all do not have the same. And to make sure all have the same, we must show partiality to those who have little because of the system. Scripture and true justice calls people to show no partiality, to play no favoritism, regardless of ethnicity, culture, status, class, gender, age, etc. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in and Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2, 1 to 13. In the same way, we are called... To not show partiality towards the rich or favoritism towards the rich, we are not called to show favoritism towards the poor. All should be treated equally and of equal worth in the church. James is pointing out the favoritism that people can give to the rich and the sin in the unequal treatment to the poor, reminding his readers that God gave the same salvific grace to both rich and poor. Their economic status was also given to them by God. This doesn't mean we don't help them. There's clear scripture verses that urge us to give and help support the poor. It's a gracious blessing to give to the poor and a gracious blessing to be poor and receive from God through those who give. The principle found in this passage is a constant principle found throughout scripture that God shows no favoritism. He gives to all he wishes to give to so Who are we to show partiality to anyone for any reason? This applies also to the neo-Marxist worldview of oppressor and oppressed. The oppressor is given salvation through Jesus Christ in the same way the oppressed are given salvation through Jesus. White people are given salvation through the same way the people of color are given salvation. And everything that white people are given, everything that people of color are given, every hardship, every material possession or lack thereof, God will use for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. Scripture calls us to help when we can to whomever God calls us to. It calls us to love all, rich, poor, white, to black, male, to female, young, to old, Christian brother and sister, to even our enemy. Matthew 5, 43-48, Luke 6, 27-36. Christian women do not need to become anti-racist, color-brave, reject color-blindness, repent through be-the-bridges ideas of reparations, they don't need to participate in collective structures that leverage privileges from one race to another, we don't need these things to participate in the family of God. We don't need them to spread the gospel or advance the kingdom. Christian women simply need scripture to guide them on what sin truly is, how to repent and what repentance really looks like. We look to it for Christ and his salvific work. We look to it for sanctification. We look to it to train us in love for brother, for sister, for neighbor, and yes, even our enemies. Christ is all we need, and scripture is all we need, and that is why I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian Podcast Community, Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.